Hello, and welcome to the Purdue AggieCon podcast, the podcast for experts and innovators in agriculture. I'm Haley Fisher. On today's episode, Dr. Foster and I talk to Dean of Honors College and professor in AggieCon, Dr. Rhonda Phillips. We will be discussing her current initiatives in Honors College, research in community development, and her new book, The Happiness Policy. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. I'm Ken Foster, Professor in Agricultural Economics and your host. And with me is my co-host, a junior in Agricultural Economics, Haley Fisher. Haley, how are you doing? Doing amazing. I got to do some Slater Hill adventures in the past couple weekends of oh, sledding wow. down the hills. So that's been really fun. Very cool. I <laughs> mean, are, are people still going down on dorm food trays or have you elevated <laughs> things to sleds these days? We have elevated to truck bed liners and <laughs> like hamper baskets and all things like all that. All right. So Fantastic. bigger the better. All right. <laughs> people, I assume, at a time. Yes. Good. Well, in my yep. day, uh, there were a lot of people who slid down Slater Hill on the food trays from the dorm cafeterias, but it's good to see that we've branched out a little bit. Awesome. Hey, do you want to introduce our guest today? Yes, so I am introducing Dr. Rhonda Phillips, also known as the Dean of Honors College here and a community well-being research expert. So. And a professor in the Department Part of, of Agriculture. Aggie Aggie yes, all that. of the above. <laughs> Rhonda, how are you today? I'm doing very well. I'm I'm uh, staying warm, which is a, a big accomplishment today. <laughs> well, my father always said nobody should ever hope for anything nice until February is over. So we've got a couple <laughs> more weeks, and then we can start to dream about warmer weather. Yes, think about springtime and that whole new cycle yes. of growing and and harvesting later in the year. So I can't wait for that. Yeah. Yeah, so can you tell us about what are some of the initiatives or things you are working on in the Honors College with students right now? Sure, absolutely. Well, I, Honors, as you know, because you're one of our <laughs> best students, uh, really is built around four pillars. We like to call them our four areas in Honors, and that include interdisciplinary academics and exposing students to lots of different ways of thinking and perspectives and that's in their curriculum, but also in some of the, the project-based work they do. A second pillar is leadership. So we have students like yourself who do a lot of wonderful things across campus and in the college, and even serve as peer mentors to, to younger students, or they serve as ambassadors to help recruit prospective students, and on and on. And the third pillar then is global and community engagement. So some of our students will do project-based work literally all over the world, but also engage in study abroad or study away, or even do exchange programs, and then also work right here in our community, in our county, in Tippecanoe County or in the region. We have quite a few projects, including working with some high schoolers, getting them ready to apply for college, for example, and many, many different projects that we have here in the community. And then we, we like to think that a student undergraduate research is the fourth pillar and we like to think that we can help students develop research thinking from the time they come into honors so that they can look at perspectives and problems and issues and think creatively about potential solutions or approaches 
and so we we really pride ourselves on helping our students have a sort of a whole spectrum or whole scholar development set of experiences and learning opportunities so they can move go forward into the world and, and do whatever it is they're excited about or pursue grad school professional studies start their own business work in the public sector work in nonprofit whatever it may be that that gets them excited about going forward and and taking some of this creative learning and adaptive thinking out into the world so how many students are currently affiliated with the Honors College at Purdue? Rumba? Sure, there's 2,700, and we are increasing rapidly. We've been asked to go up to 3,800 because that better reflects Purdue's much larger undergraduate population now. So we're in a rapid growth phase, so we'll be across Purdue to support the growth. And I'm guessing that some of our listeners are probably parents of prospective students and prospective students and other interested people associated with Purdue. Maybe you could just give them a rough structure of how a student in the Honors College integrates to the rest of the university and a major and that sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. Well, when the Honors College was started, the charter was developed in 2012. We had our first class in 2013 and I came in ahead just a couple weeks ahead of the first class. <laughs> and so we were learning together for a long time. <laughs> and we're now in our ninth year. Next year will be our 10th anniversary, which we'll celebrate very well. And, and basically, I, th I think the, you know, one of the, the biggest benefits of, of looking at being in honors is that it gives you a educational experience that goes beyond just your major area of study, because we are very, very keen on interdisciplinary academics and perspectives and undergraduate research skill development for those undergraduate students. And so I think it combines to be a powerful experience for students. And the nice thing about when we were chartered, essentially we have the pathway for honors embedded into each major so that you can get courses that you need both from your disciplinary college and from honors college. It's 24 credits that are needed, plus a scholarly project. So we feel like we have a model that, that works um, really well. We're always making improvements, trying to open up more pathways for students to learn and grow, to get those credits, to work with faculty across campus. One of the things I really like about the Purdue Honors College is that any student at Purdue can take a course with us, as long as they have a 3.0 GPA or higher, and they're welcome to come try a course. Uh, we also like to think that our events and most of the things that we do are for the whole community, not just not just us here in the 2700 staff and faculty. And that's reflected in things like having annual lectureships, like the Aronson Science and Society lectureship that comes up every first Tuesday in March, in, in March every year. And so we'll be having that soon. And it's actually food science and really they're aligned with agricultural mm -hmm. students and interests very well but but she brings a very interdisciplinary perspective and so we'll be having that soon and it's actually um, a food uh, food specialist yeah so I have a question for a sp student perspective so I actually joined Honors College my sophomore year so this is my first year so what would be your advice to students that are thinking about getting involved in Honors oh sure absolutely uh, and that's another thing I really love about our Honors College so many across the U.S. you only have one chance to get in and that's mm -hmm. as a first-year student. Yeah. And we really believe there are students who would benefit and love honors after they find out a little more about it, after they get acclimated to college a little bit, 
and then we, as long as you have a Purdue GPA and at least four semesters left, you can apply to come into honors. So we have some students who take us up on that offer, and I believe that it's, it's a very powerful experience for them, especially if they're oriented towards doing things like undergraduate research or if they want to do some more experiential learning and, and want to know different perspectives. And, and we find that that's really um, valuable for people. Yeah, I think it's super awesome too because I get to have the opportunity to take a trip with you and do an Honors 299 course this semester. So I love that you're involved with your students. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about that. I usually try to teach at least one course a year, sometimes two. This year actually will end up being three courses. <laughs> but but I, I got excited about the different topics <laughs> and just kept offering stuff. But normally it, it would be one or two. But I really like having small groups come together and, and work with me on an applied community project, which is what we'll be doing again this, this yeah. uh, second semester of, of, of this semester. Awesome. So, Rhonda, you're an expert in community development, and I, I was looking through your CV, and I saw the words community well-being, and I wonder if you can just, for our listeners, maybe help us understand what that means. How do you define community well-being, sure. and how do you measure it? Yeah, yeah those are, well, <laughs> those are tougher questions to answer than they would seem at first glance, and the reason is, is that it's emerging construct to think about how are we flourishing or not in our communities and the places we live. So this is mostly about communities of place. It can be about communities of interest, but mostly we're talking about a geographic place. And it's, it's really what I like to explain it as an umbrella concept. So you've got this, this sort of umbrella and the top of it is this, this sort of thing that encapsulates other dimensions of, of what impacts how well we're doing. So you've got community well-being at the top of the umbrella and then under or the spokes of the umbrella would be all these different things. For example, quality of life, which is a very individual kind of perception of you know, how we're doing across a variety of spectrums. It would be things like happiness studies. And when, sometimes when I say happiness studies, people sort of think, oh, that's a temporary emotion. But that's not what this is about. This is about longer term, how well we're doing or not. And so that's a different, different sort of thing. It's about community development which is helping a place make things better through deliberate action to imp make improvements. It's also about things like satisfaction with life. It's with, you know, satisfaction with your community or your, your area where you live. So there, it sort of encapsulates all these things that would take in across the spectrum of, you know, economic, physical, environmental, social, all of these things. And it's relatively new in the sense that it's, it's emerging sort of like sustainability was back in the 80s. You know, it became all these different things to all these different people. And that's sort of where we are with community well-being. It's, everybody likes to talk about well-being, but we each have sort of different conceptions of what it means because it can be very, uh, impact us each very differently. And also at the community level, it can have different impacts. So as you conduct this research and you talk to people, are you at the point yet where you can talk about are we trending in a good or a bad or an indifferent direction with respect to community well-being broadly defined? Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you asked it that way because when we look at communities or regions or states or even countries, 
and we compare to others, that's where you begin to see all these differences around what are called objective measures. And we can quickly see that, for example, the um, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, puts out something called the Better Life Index. So you can, it's a rabbit hole. You can totally get lost in this thing. Anybody can access it. You just go to the web and type in Better Life Index. You can put it on any parameters. You say, how does the U.S. compare for higher education versus all the other countries that are in the index, which, you know, it's, it's almost 200. Or how do we compare with women's ability to participate in politics in this country versus others? Or how do we compare in food accessibility or food insecurity versus other countries? And so you can play with this thing and set all these parameters. And the upshot of all of that is that the U.S. has lost ground over the last really technically since the 1950s. It started losing more ground since the 70s, so we've lost ground on things like average life expectancy has gone down for this country. Some of the other factors, social factors, have decreased. Our educational, for example, quality and attainment has gone down, and our accessibility to, say, healthcare is right up there with, say, Ukraine and a couple of the eastern, former Eastern European countries in the, from the USSR. We've lost ground. And on other things, we've done really well. As we know, we're, we're still the strongest economy out there. And we're usually fine with that. We're fine with, with sort of the material well-being aspects. But we've lost ground on other things. It's not to say that they were the bottom of the pile, because we're not but we have room to improve things. And I think that's becoming more and more clear as you look at these indicators of how we measure progress in society, in our economies, in our political systems, in our environmental quality, and we've lost a lot of ground. So there's a lot more interest in community well-being than there ever has been because of these kind of confluence of factors coming together at this point in our history. And of course, even inside of our country, we've got a a lot of variation in community well-being, I'm sure, as you look across the geographic and other spectrums of, of division there. Can we identify sure. what's yeah. caused this? Well, I mean, there's, I mean, this is the stuff that news commentators and researchers and politicians and everybody else argue over all the time. But the sort of the, the long view of it is that there are a couple things that are sort of considered, if you will, you know, you think about infrastructure, like physical infrastructure. You can also think of it as societal infrastructure. And we, for example, we are the only industrialized country, like in the, in the G7, certainly in the, even in the G20, that does not have access to health care for everyone. We are the only country, i got to repeat that, the only one. We know this impacts well-being because it's the physical dimensions of how well we can thrive as a society if we can't take care of basic health needs. So there's one big thing right there. <laughs> the other thing is education. We don't have consistent quality in our educational systems, and that's a direct relationship to how well places are doing or not in economic terms. So we have this. You know, we may be doing great in some regions and areas, but you can go 
10 miles outside the city limit and it's a different district and different resources and they may not have anything comparable. So our rural areas get hit extremely hard. And if you look at the index of say, the most poverty stricken or most economically distressed areas in the US, guess where they are predominantly? Rural America. So, and in fact, the 200, if you take the 250 most economically depressed counties in the U.S., and again, there are over 3,000 counties in the U.S., guess how many of out of 250 would be rural in nature? 250 counties at the bottom of the economic performance. Well, you may have skewed my answer by your earlier comment. I'm going to say 200. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what about you? 225. <laughs> 248. Oh Whoa! <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm from rural America. I grew up on a farm in the deep south, in wow. one of the most poverty-stricken areas still in this country. And I know what it's like to be there and see this and what, what kind of barriers there are for people to climb out of that. And a lot of it goes back to education and also health. If you look at the stats, there are people that lose their homes because of a health issue, that lose their ability to make a living, and they don't have any options. In fact, a lot of the bankruptcies in this country are triggered by health issues, and it just almost defies logic at this point that we are the only country, industrialized country in the world, that can't give access to all its people to keep people healthy. When you have a healthy person, you can begin to thrive and do other things, like be probably more economically healthy and, and certainly contribute to your community if you're having good health. And if you don't, then we're, we're going to be put behind the eight ball, and especially in rural areas that, in the first place, don't have a lot of access to health care. The lack of resilience that comes from not having those, those safety nets there, education there, and healthcare. Yeah. There's no safety nets in so much of our society. And here's the problem that I've seen. I've seen this in my own lifetime. From growing up on a, on a, um, a very diverse farm in the 60s and 70s until rural America sort of lost a lot of its ability to have small farms during that era of the 70s and into the 80s particularly. And, and how livelihoods, the ability to have a livelihood changed dramatically and particularly, again, for rural areas. And, you know, there were no options. And so this put, really put this country in a downward spiral in our rural areas in ways that we are still, it's hard to ever recover from that. And um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's something that we need to think about as, as, as a nation is how do we make opportunities available or, or at least, it's not even that, it's more, how do you enable people to flourish enough to be able to create or take advantage of opportunities? And one of those ways, we know this from all the research that's been done. Yeah, I was just thinking too, not even just the physical health, but the mental health. Down dramatically in this country. And, and that's what, you know, keeps, sometimes this keeps me awake at night trying to think, how do you, how do you express this in ways that that get people excited about wanting to work with it. And that's why I like community well-being because it focuses on the positive, like how can we build on assets to make things happen and not just correcting need because we will never have enough resources 
it's infinite the need to correct the to to apply there will just never be enough but if we build it from a aspect of sort of like from positive psychology is where a lot of the happiness research comes from and well-being research we build on assets instead psychological implications of something like this and how that ties in like that's got to be a major factor too right you're absolutely right i mean as i said earlier so a lot of happiness research and well-being research emanates from some a, a branch of psychology called positive psychology it also is coming from economics. There's a whole group of people that work on this in economics, like Richard Easter, people in group in more of the sociology, philosophy, all of these groups are coming together to see how we think about how we flourish as a society or not. And these are all questions. You know, uh, Aristotle talked about flourishing 2,000 years ago, and, and it you could take some of the exact quotes or some of the writings and it sounds like what we're talking about today 2,000 years later so it's not going to go away it's been with us we just need to think about ways that we can incorporate or address in our systems in society to make things move forward I mean the Greek philosophers all even back to the rural issue right I mean they're very focused on the agrarian values and what those brought to the community broader than just producing the food. So That's right. Very interesting. Hey, for our listeners, um, you know, Dr. Phillips is a very prolific author. She writes a lot, of course, for the academic community, but she also writes for the lay audience, and she's got a book out there called The Happiness Policy, and the book is focused on policymakers and citizens to help them create um, communities and policies and an environment where people can pursue our stated goal as a country, the pursuit of happiness. And so I just really encourage everybody maybe uh, track down a copy of this book, The Happiness Policy Handbook, How to Make Happiness and Well-Being the Purpose of Your Government by Dr. Rhonda Phillips. So Rhonda, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Um, Any parting comments? Be well, be happy. Awesome. That's I great. love it. And have a lot of food. You've been listening to the Purdue Agricultural Economics Podcast. You can visit the department at www.purdue.agecon.edu. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thank you. Have an awesome, awesome spring.